Hey y'all, Eves here. Today's episode contains not just one, but two nuggets of history. These are coming from the TDIHC vault, so you'll also hear two hosts. Consider it a double feature. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's January 12th. The schoolhouse blizzard took place on this day in 1888. This happened during the relatively early days of weather forecasting in the United States. Thanks to the telegraph, it had become possible to spread the word about weather events and weather forecasts quickly. And on February 9th, 1870, so just 18 years before Ulysses S. Grant had signed a resolution that made observing and recording the weather something that was under the guidance of the Secretary of War. This ultimately fell to the Signal Service Corps. Recording the weather and making predictions at first was really general, and it was done for big chunks of North America. But gradually, over the years, this became more detailed, more frequent, and more specific. This was not nearly what we can expect from weather forecasts today, which even today, there will be days where the forecast says it will not rain, and then you get rained on. But it was a lot better than nothing. So by the winter of 1887 to 1888, this forecasting had been going on for a while. People had started to rely on it. And the weather that winter happened to have been particularly hard There had been blizzards in December, with temperatures staying so cold afterward that nothing really melted. And then by the morning of January 12th, suddenly that long cold snap broke. The temperature got up to 40 degrees Fahrenheit or 4 degrees Celsius, which to people who had been in these frigid temperatures for weeks felt almost like a heat wave. People who had been cooped up inside all got out, and in some cases, children headed off to school for the first time in days. A lot of people were out and about in relatively light clothing, because when you're used to it being well below freezing, a sunny day at 40 degrees can feel really warm. The weather forecast for that day, which had been composed the day before in St. Paul, read, quote, The indications for 24 hours commencing at 7 a.m. today. For St. Paul, Minneapolis, and vicinity, warmer weather with snow. Fresh southerly winds becoming variable. For Minnesota, warm with snow, fresh to high southerly winds becoming variable. For Dakota, snow, warmer, followed in the western portion by colder weather. Fresh to high winds generally becoming northerly. Snow will drift heavily in Minnesota and Dakota during the day and night. Winds will generally shift to high, colder, northerly during the afternoon and night. So the forecasters were expecting a wave of warm weather, followed by a drop in the temperature, but not a drop so severe as to warrant a freeze warning for later on in the day. Tragically, though, it turned out that the weather got a lot warmer than expected and then a lot colder. As the temperature started dropping on the 12th, the Signal Corps started sending telegrams updating their earlier forecast with a cold warning. But for a variety of reasons, this warning did not arrive in most places in time to do much good. So a blinding blizzard rolled through the area where it had previously been so warm earlier in the day, and it happened in the afternoon just as a lot of children were heading home from school. Temperatures plummeted and winds gusted beyond 40 miles an hour. 
And the snow was also particularly fine to the point that people's eyelashes froze together and they couldn't see. Accounts of what happened on that day are full of just dramatic occurrences. Things like teachers trying to keep their students safe and warm at school or trying to guide them home through a blizzard when none of them could see. People got lost just out of sight of their homes and died within steps of their doorsteps. Livestock and other animals froze to death. An estimated 200 to 300 people were killed. And then another blizzard struck the Northeast that March. This was another massive storm, and it was nicknamed the Great White Hurricane. This killed at least 400 people. In 1889, newly inaugurated President Benjamin Harrison moved the responsibility for weather forecasting to the Department of Agriculture, in part because of the embarrassment over these two back-to-back tragedies, both of which had not had a freeze warning issued far enough ahead of time to keep people safe. You can learn a lot more about this in the January 18th, 2016 episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class called The Schoolhouse Blizzard. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on this show. You can subscribe to This Day in History Class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can tune in tomorrow for an incredibly destructive riot. Hi, everyone. I'm Eves. Welcome to This Day in History Class, a show that will convince you that history can be fascinating even when you expect it not to be. The day was January 12, 1964. The government of the Sultan of Zanzibar was overthrown, and Zanzibar was proclaimed a republic under President Abedi Karume. Zanzibar is an island in the Indian Ocean, just off the coast of East Central Africa. Many people immigrated to the island from Persia and from the African mainland. And Arabs established a lot of control and influence in Zanzibar. The island became central to slave and ivory trade routes, and it was rich in resources like coconuts. At the end of the 17th century, Zanzibar came under the rule of the Sultan of Oman, But Omani rule weakened, and in 1890, Zanzibar became a British protectorate. The British considered Zanzibar an Arab country and upheld existing power structures. The office of the Sultan remained, though it was stripped of most of its power, and Arabs were given ample opportunities for education and bureaucratic positions. This setup lasted until 1963. In July of that year, a general election gave a majority to a coalition of two political parties, the Arab-dominated Zanzibar Nationalist Party and the Zanzibar and Pemba People's Party. The Afro-Shirazi Party, an African Nationalist Party, was in the minority, even though it got 54% of the vote. Members of the Afro-Shirazi Party, or ASP, were unsatisfied with this lack of representation despite their victories and the Arab elite made it clear that they viewed Africans as inferior through treatment and policy. Racial tensions were already high between the Arab elite and the Black majority, and it was no different with the new Arab-dominated government. The Sultan banned the Ummah Party, which was made up of radical Arab socialists, and policemen of mainland African origin were fired. This inspired mainland Africans in Zanzibar and the Ummah Party to work together. 
That said, ASP member John Okello kept his revolutionary plans secret from the top leaders of the party. In December of 1963, the UK ended the protectorate over Zanzibar. Zanzibar regained its independence and became a member of the British Commonwealth. It became a constitutional monarchy under the Sultan. But this period was short-lived. On the early morning of January 12, 1964, just a month after Zanzibar became independent from British rule, Okello led a group of mainly African insurgents in attacking police stations and taking weapons. Then they went to Zanzibar town, where they ousted the Sultan and his government. The revolution got a lot of support from Africans, but the uprising was bloody, as the insurgents killed and raped Arabs and South Asians and forced many others to flee. The death toll is disputed, with high estimates placed at around 20,000 people. The moderate ASP leader, Abedi Karume, became Zanzibar's new president and head of state. Members of the UMA party were installed in positions of power. Western nations feared the new government's communist ties, but Zanzibar never emerged as a communist power. Leaders in China, East Germany, and the Soviet Union did establish relations with Zanzibar, though. In April of 1964, Karume signed a declaration of unity with Tanganyika, a state in East Central Africa, and together the two countries became the United Republic of Tanzania. The revolution ended two centuries of dominance by the Arab ruling class, and Zanzibar Revolution Day is a public holiday in Tanzania. But the revolution's legacy is also one of brutal violence. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you haven't gotten your fill of history yet, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Podcast. You can also shoot us an email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. We're here every day, so you know where to find us. Bye.